Welcome to this special breast cancer edition of Oncology Practice Update, an audio review journal for nurse practitioners and physician's assistants specializing in oncology. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. The management of early and advanced breast cancer is increasing in complexity as clinical trials provide new information relevant to algorithms of patient management. I asked nurse practitioner Ms. Julie Plantamira to select two patients from her practice to present to breast cancer investigator Dr. Chuck Vogel, and she began with a young woman with node-positive disease. She's a 52-year-old premenopausal female who presented with an abnormal mammogram and a palpable mass that she discovered herself and pursued her GYN for an evaluation. Center for her mammogram, she missed last year's, otherwise she had been going for annual mammographies. So she underwent a right breast core biopsy back in April which revealed invasive lobular carcinoma. And this was followed by a lumpectomy and sentinel lymph node biopsy. Two of three sentinel lymph nodes revealed micrometastatic carcinoma. Chuck, what would you want to know more about those sentinel nodes? I just want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing when we talk about micrometastases. These were not isolated tumor cells. These were micrometastases, which would be defined as aggregates of greater than two millimeters in size. That's correct. Okay. Then she had a full axillary node dissection and follow-up. Zero of 14 nodes were positive. The tumor's four centimeters in greatest dimension. ERP are positive. They did not report it as strong or weak. They just reported it as positive. And HER2 knew negative by fish. Okay, so Chuck, this is a pretty common situation of a patient with an ER positive, HER2 negative tumor. I guess probably the commonest subtype that we see. What about the lobular aspect of this? The fact normally these are infiltrating ductal cancers. Well, the first thing is is that lobular cancers are very seldom here to new positive, so it doesn't surprise me that it's negative. And as far as the treatment for lobular carcinomas, we know that they tend not to respond quite as well to chemotherapy. We know that from neoadjuvant trials from MD Anderson Cancer Center, where the pathologic complete response rate for the lobular subset is very, very low. As far as subsetting them out, as far as treatment, you can't really do that. So they would be offered one of the common adjuvant regimens that you would use for a patient with positive nodes. I would consider micrometastases as positive lymph nodes, and I would treat her with the two commonest, I guess, with the best data would be either dose-dense AC followed by paclitaxel. I have in the absence of data, move to AC followed by weekly paclitaxel or TAC. You were asking about a situation where they're just isolated cells and you brought up this issue of two millimeters. Can you kind of go into what's behind that? Yeah, it's actually 0.2 millimeters is the cutoff for micrometastases as opposed to ITC or isolated tumor cells. And If the patient had isolated tumor cells, then they're considered as having node-negative disease, and it's not uncommon for us to do Oncotype DX on these patients who have isolated tumor cells because they are considered as node-negative. Let's talk a little bit about the woman herself, Julie. What was her life situation? Was she working? And what was her state of mind when you first met her? She's the mother of two children. She has a 17-year-old daughter and a 15-year-old son. She works as a receptionist in an OBGYN office, works full-time, is a homemaker. In addition, she's married. She had otherwise, her general health had been good, no significant comorbidities, very active, active in her community also. What was her state of mind? She had met with a patient who we treated for breast cancer about four years ago. So I have to say that she was somewhat calm, cool, and collected when she came into our office because she had already sat down with another woman who had gone through treatment for node-positive breast cancer and now being four years out, hearing her stories and what to expect. So to some extent, she already had a lot of education behind her as well as psychosocial support from knowing somebody very closely who she worked with 
person also lived nearby who had gone through a similar treatment. Did she have any specific concerns about chemotherapy? Her main concern was hair loss and that she wanted to continue to work full time. And then, of course, she was concerned for her daughter come in the future as far as if any heredity would take part because she does have a family history of breast cancer. Who exactly in her family has breast cancer? She has a maternal aunt who had breast cancer in her 60s and is currently 90 years old and doing well. She has a maternal cousin who was diagnosed at 52 with node positive breast cancer who received chemotherapy. She also has a grandmother who passed away of ovarian cancer and a maternal aunt who had ovarian cancer and was treated successfully. What do you think about that family history, Chuck, and what would cause you to do genetic testing in general in the primary breast cancer situation? Well, I just used the myriad genetic slide rule, but you don't need a slide rule here. Ovarian cancer in two family members and the others with breast cancer and her early age of diagnosis, I would be very surprised if she isn't a gene carrier. And even if she is found to not be a gene carrier by BRCA1 or BRCA2, I would probably treat her as though she were a gene carrier. And I would be a bit concerned in terms of discussions with a patient with this kind of history in terms of making decisions, even surgical decisions, without genetic testing, because if she were to test positive, I would probably try to move the patient more in the direction of bilateral mastectomies than breast conservation. Gene carriers have a 40% risk of contralateral breast cancer, and so genetic testing up front would have factored very heavily into my thought processes here in terms of treatment. Now, at the time you saw her, she already had her surgery, I guess, right? She had already had her surgery. She was aware of BRCA testing. She actually still has not made a decision. We've encouraged her to undergo BRCA testing, especially given her family history and that she does indeed have a daughter. Another aspect of this case, Chuck, is the fact that the tumors ERP are positive and hormonal therapy, which generally would follow chemotherapy in this situation. Now, she's 52 years old, and you said she's premenopausal. Regular menstrual periods? Regular menstrual periods. No menopausal symptoms? Nothing. So what would you be thinking about hormone therapy, and would it change if she stopped having her periods after chemotherapy? No, because I'm so blown away by her family history that even if she had chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea, it couldn't hurt her to have her ovaries removed from the standpoint of her breast cancer, and it would be preventive for ovarian cancer. So ophorectomy would figure into my overall hormonal treatment plan, and then the question of whether to treat with tamoxifen or with an aromatase inhibitor remains an unanswered question, although it has been addressed by the Austrian group in a beautiful trial where they used an LHRH agonist instead of ophorectomy. But in that trial, they then randomized patients to tamoxifen or to an aromatase inhibitor and further randomized them to prophylactic zoledronic acid or not. And so far, they haven't published the results of the therapeutic part of it, but they have published the bone density results. And the zoledronic acid serves very well to abrogate the bone loss associated with the AIs and also the bone loss, although less, with tamoxifen. And so the question is going to be, what do you do with the ophorectomy? And I would probably choose an aromatase inhibitor because by that time she is postmenopausal and we know from all of the trials of the three aromatase inhibitors that all are superior to tamoxifen. You know, it's interesting you mentioned about bone, because a lot of people see tamoxifen as agonist and bone building, and yet in this particular situation, they actually lost bone on tamoxifen. Well, that doesn't surprise me, because actually we've known about this really for some time, that we always talk about tamoxifen as preventing bone loss, but that's in postmenopausal women. And the early studies that were done with tamoxifen and bone density in premenopausal women indicated that it accelerated bone loss. 
But now this situation, they're being made menopausal by having their ovaries taken out, and yet they still were losing bone. They're going to lose bone. Patients who have received chemotherapy, patients who are being made menopausal, they're just going to lose bone. And tamoxifen is going to prevent that to some degree, not like the aromatase inhibitors. The aromatase inhibitors are going to help to lose bone. Tamoxifen, you won't lose as much bone in the postmenopausal setting. So we want to hear what happened with this patient, but just one more word about bone and aromatase inhibitors. Julie, how are you following these patients and approaching you know, prevention of osteoporosis, et cetera? Well, we're making sure that our patients have a baseline bone density to begin with, that they're taking calcium and vitamin D. Some patients are being treated with the spectrum of either Fosamax or Actinel or Boniva. And then we do have a spectrum of patients that receive zelandronic acid as an intravenous infusion once a year. So what actually happened with this patient? Was she treated with? This patient is currently receiving therapy and she has had three cycles of docetaxel and cytoxin, three of six planned cycles. So she's basically getting the TC regimen. Is that something you've been using a lot in your practice? Just recently, this is the second patient that we've treated with TC with the plan of her going on to radiation and then a decision to be made again regarding tamoxifen versus an aromatase inhibitor. Chuck, the TC story is kind of interesting. In this situation, she's got a couple of nodes. I don't know if they're less concerning because they're kind of small in terms of the amount of tumor, but she does have a couple of positive nodes. But the TC study that compared docetaxelcyclophosphamide to doxorubicin cyclophosphamide did allow people, I think, with one to three positive nodes. And they, it looked like there were fewer relapses in the TC group. Yeah, it's definitely a very active regimen. And what I generally do is I consider it as like a second-generation regimen. Even though it's the new kid on the block, TC is going to be compared with TAC, with both given for six cycles by U.S. Oncology. They're doing that study with Tori and with Sarah Cannon. Now, how is this woman doing now? How many treatments has she gotten and how is she doing? She's had three treatments. Her third treatment was this past Tuesday, approximately a week ago. She's tolerating the treatment well. She has had alopecia, of course. She does receive growth factor support with Nulasta 24 hours after each chemotherapy infusion. She hasn't had any neuropathic complaints or the nail changes that can come along with docetaxel. She has not had mucositis. She is starting to get a little bit of eye tearing very slight, nothing that is too bothersome for her. And her main complaint is somewhere, you know, around day two or three after therapy, she does report some fatigue and minimal nausea. She hasn't experienced any emesis. How is she doing from a sort of psychosocial point of view? I think that initially when her hair started to fall out, she had come in and her hair was coming out in clumps. And that was after the first cycle, just before her second cycle was due. And I recommended that she go home and, you know, with a buzzer, go and shave her head because the idea of every morning waking up with clumps of hair on her pillow was making her more sick than the chemotherapy. I think another shock for her, which I did try to prepare her for before starting therapy, was that she could possibly lose her eyelashes and her eyebrows. It's something that we don't always think about, but you can put on a wig or a full cranial prosthesis. You can even pencil in eyebrows, but you know, although you can put on false eyelashes, it's a little bit more difficult. So that was somewhat of a shock for her when it actually happened. Do you find her sort of pulling back socially, avoiding people or seeking people out? No, I don't think she's pulling back. She's not even to the point. She comes into the office, she wears a baseball cap. She doesn't wear her wig out unless she's going to dinner or they're going to a party or she's going to see people that she almost thinks it'll be shocking to them. But she said even to go to the grocery store, she'll throw on a baseball cap. Her friends, her neighbors, her coworkers all know that she's been diagnosed with cancer and is receiving therapy for it. She does wear her wig to work, though, and she's working part-time right now. You mentioned before that she knew someone who'd been through this experience. Do you actually try to you know, arrange for people to meet patients like this? 
We used to do it all the time before HIPAA guidelines came out. I would call a patient and say, would you mind if I have Mrs. Jones call you? She's going to be receiving the same therapy that you just recently had. I'll still do it to some extent if I know I have somebody who will be great to talk to. We do have support groups that meet at our practice as well as look good, feel better, which I do encourage at first meeting before these women start therapy that they could start to join that. And I think that when the patients are being treated in the infusion centers, oftentimes there's a second patient in the room with them because the rooms are semi-private that we have in our outpatient facility. And they talk to each other. They comfort one another. They talk about the treatments that they've been through. And even if it's not the same diagnosis or treatment, they can at least share their stories with one another, which I know is very helpful. What do you see going on in your infusion room, Chuck? The women gather around together and have little pods like a coffee clutch and there's no question that they're bonding and that the patients would insist on coming in at the same time in the same hour so that they could interact with their new buddies. At this early point, Julie, what's going on between the patient and her husband and the patient and her children? Her daughter is now a senior in high school, and they have a very close relationship, a very strong relationship. I have not met her son, who is 16 years old, and how he's dealing with it. And believe it or not, I have not met her husband either. She came for her initial consultation with her daughter. So she reported her and her husband have a good relationship. I did discuss intimacy and sexual relations with her at the initial visit, also being the fact that she was married. And I usually, in a sense, try to, whether a patient is married or may or may not have a significant other, just touch on that, especially even from a physical standpoint of what they're going to be feeling and emotional standpoint. But her husband is very supportive of her. He is vice president of a bank and works a lot of hours and does a lot of travel. So I think he's supportive for her at home, although he does not come to the office for her visits with her. Now, when you have these initial conversations related to sexuality, what are some of the things you talk about? Well, one of which is they're going to be feeling tired and fatigued because no matter what the diagnosis is and no matter what the chemotherapeutic agents patients are receiving, that's the number one complaint. It's just feeling tired and lethargic. And many patients don't feel like they have the energy to do much of anything. And another thing is the physical changes that you're going to experience. One that may be from a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, either or, as well as hair loss, which can happen all over the body. In addition to sometimes these women actually gain weight instead of lose weight. So we get more in depth with that. What about, you mentioned her children. How do you generally approach the issue of advice to patients about what to say to children, particularly younger children? And how does it vary based on the age of the children? I think it depends on the age and the maturity. I mean, having a teenager, I think they know, most teenagers know what cancer is. I think that sometimes for a younger child, If they even hear of cancer, they may right away associate it with dying and not realize that people live for years with cancer, even some cancers that are metastatic. And I think it's important for them to know that at the beginning, somewhat of an idea of what the prognosis is going to be. I think if you have a very small child, if you have a toddler or even a four or five-year-old, it's, you know, that mommy or daddy are going to be getting a therapy and they may not feel so good all the time and they have to take special medicine and go into an office, they're not going to understand cancer or chemotherapy, but they need to understand that mommy and daddy need to get medicine because they don't feel good. Chuck, it seems like I've seen a trend more in line of what Julie just described of trying to offer information to children who are old enough to understand it, as opposed to maybe in the past when it was kind of hidden. What's your experience been with this whole issue? Well, I think Gilda's Club does a very good job at that with their Noogie Land concept. The children and the patients who have had their children go to Gilda's Club have come away with a very positive experience. It's really a bonding with the children of other patients who have cancer, other parents who have cancer. And they have meetings, they go on field trips, and I think it's a very good experience. And Within our center, we have a psychological social worker who will meet with each and every patient and try to explore this in detail. The medical oncologist often does not have the time 
to get into the depth that is needed with regards to that type of psychosocial interaction. As a male oncologist, it's also a little bit more difficult, I think, than female oncologists dealing with a practice of breast cancer patients. And I try to encourage my nurses to get more involved in feeling out the psychosexual aspects of my patients' needs and trying to address those more through the social worker. Okay. Getting back to the treatment this woman received, Julie mentioned the issue of the tearing that's sometimes seen with docetaxel. How much of a problem can this be, and why do we see this, actually? What's going on? It's seen in approximately 25 to 30% of patients getting docetaxel. It's due to sclerosis by the drug itself, sclerosing the tear ducts, and the name for it is epiphora, and the treatment for it is either what's called a SNP procedure, where the ophthalmologist can just make a little surgical SNP in the tear duct or uh, cannulation of the tear ducts. It gets to be a significant problem, and in the study by Esteva, I think something like 12 out of 25 patients had significant epiphora. What about nails, Julie? Did she have any changes in her nails? Not at this point in time. Now, do you normally see the tearing and the nail problems when it's short-term therapy in the adjuvant setting or more in the metastatic disease? I've seen it more in metastatic disease than in the adjuvant setting. Now, this woman, you mentioned, Julie, the issue that she had these two positive nodes, but also the question of if the nodes had been negative in this situation, whether or not oncotype would fit into her management pattern. Chuck, in our patterns of care studies over the last two, three years, we see a rapid increase in the use of oncotype in the ER-positive, node-negative subset. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you utilize it in your own practice and also the Taylor X study that's trying to look at that? Well, I do use it routinely in the practice, and I see a lot of these patients. And there were actually two ASCO abstracts this year looking at the question of percentages of changes in therapeutic direction based on oncotype assays. And I think one of them was 18% and the other one was about 27% or thereabouts. And most of the changes in direction were from chemotherapy initially to not giving chemotherapy because of relatively low oncotype scores. So there have been actually a number of these kinds of surveys of practice, and I keep hearing around this 20 25%. So basically, if there weren't an oncotype, the patient will get treatment X, they do the oncotype, and maybe one out of four times, X changes. So Correct. either the patient was going to get chemo, and because of the oncotype, they have a low recurrence score, they don't, or they weren't going to get chemo, and now they have high score, and now they're going to get it. Correct. And when you utilize chemotherapy in these situations, a high recurrence score, what kind of chemotherapy do you tend to use? Again, it's a node-negative ER-positive tumor. That's a fascinating question. One would think that you want to be very aggressive, but the study that was the linchpin, really, of Oncotype DX was the NSABP B20 trial. And in that trial, the high-risk patients were treated with CMF. And that particular slide, if one looks at that slide, you know, we talk about 3.6% benefits of an aromatase inhibitor over tamoxifen. This was a 27% benefit with the addition of CMF chemotherapy to tamoxifen over tamoxifen alone in patients with a high recurrence score. So, you're converting with CMF these patients up towards the 90% range. So then the question is, how much more can you expect to get from even a third-generation protocol? So because of that, a regimen like TC would be a very interesting regimen. It's sort of a midway regimen. I think that probably you'd add another couple of percent with TC over CMF and maybe 1% more with the use of taxane third-generation-based chemotherapy. And you were also asking about the Taylor RX study, and we're participating in that. And basically what that study is, is it guarantees that the patient's oncotype is going to be paid for. 
The patient signs an informed consent form if they're ER positive and node negative. If their oncotype score is low and there's a different definition in the study compared with the classic definition of low risk by genomic health. But here, the cutoff for a current score is 11, and the cutoff for between intermediate risk and high risk is, I believe, 25. And the patients who have a low risk recurrent score will automatically just get hormonal therapy. Those who have a high recurrent score will obviously get chemotherapy in addition to hormonal therapy. And the intermediate group patients are offered the opportunity of being randomized to chemotherapy or no chemotherapy in addition to hormonal therapy. And Jewel, you know, the oncotype really focuses on one of the most vexing problems I think we have in oncology, which is the node-negative patient where we're trying to decide about chemotherapy. And at least until oncotype, the benefits seem fairly modest. And one of the related questions is, you know, what kinds of attitudes do women have in this situation where they're looking at taking chemotherapy, but yet, you know, maybe the benefit is going to be very, very modest in terms of the patient who's super, super proactive, wants to get anything that they can possibly do to reduce their risk versus the woman who's much more concerned about toxicity. What's the spectrum of attitudes that you see in women in these situations? I think the spectrum is somewhat broad. I mean, there are the patients that come in who they may not even need chemotherapy, these patients, and they want everything. You know, they may have chosen a mastectomy. We see patients with lobular carcinoma in situ, and we try to explain to them that this isn't even really a cancer. And, you know, it hangs over their head like a dark cloud. So we see the spectrum of women that want every treatment hit me with the hardest chemotherapy possible out there. I'll take it to the spectrum of a patient who may have a more aggressive tumor that says, I don't want to lose my hair. I don't want to have any nausea and vomiting. I don't want to have to be away from work. And I can tell you a few years ago, we saw a young woman who was a teacher with young children at home. She's actually five years out now. I saw her on Tuesday and she went for five opinions before she could decide what to do treatment wise. She was just waiting for somebody to tell her that she did not need any kind of chemotherapy for a stage two breast cancer. And she went for five opinions in the end, all of which recommending chemotherapy. And thankfully, she had some side effects, but you know, not an extreme case of any one side effect in particular. But we do see a broad spectrum of how patients react to their diagnosis and their treatment plan. And you mentioned work. Is this woman continuing to work? This patient is continuing to work. Again, she is a receptionist at an OBGYN office. She was working five days a week, and she went down to three days a week before she even started therapy. She just didn't want to push herself over the limit that she thought would be too much for her. Now, Chuck, right now we're using the Oncotype just in patients with node-negative tumors, but we're starting to see some data coming out. And just at the recent ASCO meeting, there's some data looking at Oncotype in node-positive disease. How do you think that's going to play out over the next few years? I think the most important trial is going to be coming up in the not-too-distant future, within the year. And that's Kathy Albain's Southwest Oncology Group trial, where she looked at the question of tamoxifen alone in postmenopausal women versus chemotherapy with CAF plus tamoxifen concomitantly and CAF followed by tamoxifen. These are all node-positive patients. These are all node-positive patients. And that's the ideal population to study, and I do know that they are going to be looking at that, are looking at it right now. The study by ECOG that Lori Goldstein presented, it was a wonderful study and showed that the recurrent score was helpful in terms of determining that low-risk women did very well indeed with four doses of chemotherapy, be it AC or doxorubicin plus docetaxel. But of course, it didn't have the important arm of hormonal therapy alone. And I think it'll be a blockbuster in terms of paradigm shifts if we learn that there are very good risk node positive patients who could be predicted by Oncotype DX to avoid chemotherapy. 
I'm hearing this expression more and more about the biology of the tumor is more important than sort of the pathology or anatomy, that we're moving more towards looking at the function. And I guess one of the key things with Oncotype is they really accurately can look at proliferation, which you might expect would be correlated with uh, response to chemotherapy. Is that kind of the way you see it sort of intuitively in terms of what they're looking at? Yes, and I do believe in biology over anatomy pathology. And I think that this could be a revolutionary concept, and I'm just waiting to see that Southwest Oncology Group node positive study. I'm hoping for San Antonio, maybe ASCO next year. Now, the other thing about the oncotype that's interesting is sort of as part of that, they're also assessing ER and HER2, two markers that right now we're obviously assessing clinically, but now they're using this sort of RT-PCR technique that seems like maybe it's going to bring more standardization to those markers. Is that your take? It very well could. I mean, obviously, if you look at the scattergrams that are shown on the Oncotype DX, all these patients are supposed to be ER positive, node negative, and you find a bunch of them are ER negative patients. And that just is a reflection of the poor quality control that we've had in our testing. So they had an oncotype sent thinking they were ER positive, and the oncotype showed they were actually ER negative. Correct. That's scary. Yeah, it's very scary. But we've known about this, and we've known about this in HER2 testing, and HER2 testing and the conundrum that we've had with that then thrust the ERPR into the forefront and showed us again, that we're doing a very poor job at quality control in ERPR by immunohistochemistry. We were doing great when Jim Whitliffe was sending around powders for dextran-coated charcoal because we had standardization. And then with immunohistochemistry, it's a very good technique, but it's not standardized. Julie, you mentioned that this woman was gaining weight. Can you talk a little bit more about what was going on with food and exercise with her? She is overweight to begin with, and she had expected that going on to chemotherapy, she would automatically lose weight. She almost joked about it. This could be the best diet she's ever had. And, you know, we do see some patients do get some fluid retention with docetaxel. And just in general, some of our breast cancer patients who are even on TAC or ACT, whatever the regimen, they tend to not lose weight. She's put on about 10 pounds since beginning therapy. She was not somebody who exercised before, but she said that she does find herself somewhat more sedentary. Again, she's not at work five days a week. She's at work three days a week. And now her daughter has gone back to school for her senior year also, as opposed to in the summer, usually her daughter would be home with her during the day and they may have some activities that they would go out and do. So when she's home on her days off from work, she's home alone and she finds herself eating more and again, leading a more sedentary lifestyle. How does she feel about that? I mean, pretty short period of time to be gaining 10 pounds. I mean, that's almost two pounds a month that she has gained. And I know that she doesn't feel very comfortable in her body image with this weight gain, not to mention now that she's experienced hair loss. What about this issue of weight gain and breast cancer, Chuck? It's always been a totally counterintuitive thing. Most people like this woman think they're going to lose weight. And I think most of them actually do gain weight like she does. Yeah, most do gain weight. And we've had very poor understanding of that. At the beginning, all the women getting tamoxifen would say they gain weight, and they do. But in the original controlled randomized trials of tamoxifen versus placebo, as many women on the placebo gained weight as on tamoxifen. So whether the patient is on tamoxifen, whether they're on chemotherapy, or whether they're on nothing, I find that there is a tendency for them to gain weight. And, you know, it's hard to really understand it. And it's a very important thing, especially in light of the studies of Rowan Schlebowski, where they were able to show that if the women were able to curb their diet and have a low-fat diet, that actually it contributed to improvement in outcomes. Julie, that was really a surprising report, you know, that the relapse rate actually decreased in this randomized study, actual randomized study, when women ate less fat. What was your take on that? What happened in your practice? Are you bringing that up to your patients? 
I bring it up with my patients, but I have to tell you that it was on the internet. It was in our local newspapers. It was on the six o'clock news that patients were aware. And I can tell you that when my patients come in during or after therapy and they've gained weight, these women are concerned and they realize the risk of being overweight with a history of breast cancer. We do thankfully have a nutritionist in our office, which I do refer our patients to. Oftentimes I'll even check a thyroid profile on them also just to see there's nothing underlying that's contributing to their weight gain. And as much time as I try to spend with them myself, also discussing a diet and exercise routine. In addition, just for the weight bearing exercise as a potential also to help their bones and to prevent osteopenia or osteoporosis in addition. We know that obviously in general, in the general public, there are a lot of people who have difficulty with food and controlling their diet. And you would think that maybe somebody who's going to the step of taking chemotherapy to try to reduce relapse would be much more motivated than the average person trying to control your diet. And yet I've been hearing from clinicians that even in the face of that kind of information, people still have difficulty controlling what they eat in this situation. Is that your experience, Julie? I think that what happens sometimes when patients are diagnosed with cancer and they're receiving chemotherapy is their friends, their relatives, and their neighbors say, eat whatever you want, have whatever you want. And the initial thought process is to do that. And then by the time they finish their therapy, I think they start to look at themselves over again and overhaul the situation. But I think when they're going through therapy, they don't think about the studies that are out there and the risk of obesity and a high fat diet, increasing relapse rates and a poor prognosis in breast cancer patients, I think that they think to themselves, if it tastes good, if I want it, I'm going through chemo for breast cancer, I'm going to have it and I'm going to treat myself. And I guess, Chuck, one of the interesting things about that WIN study, that Women's Intervention Nutritional Study that Rowan Chablowski reported was that when they looked at it, they actually saw a greater drop in relapse rate in the ER negative patients. And I think originally they were thinking that this diet has something to do with estrogens and ER positive, and yet I think it was like about a 36% drop in relapse rate. That was a very interesting sideline of that particular trial or subset analysis. And how did Rowan explain that? Well, actually, he talks about insulin growth factor that might be important. I mean, most of these women actually have triple negative tumors. If you think about it, they're ER negative, PR negative, and since 80% of breast cancer is HER2 negative, so we don't really have anything targeted for triple negative tumors. And the theory is that maybe insulin growth factor in some way will you know, react or in some way is stimulating ER negative tumors. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, it does make some sense. We're actually looking at a new trial with a insulin growth factor receptor inhibitor. Right. And these new drugs are coming along now. So we'll get a look at them. It's interesting, Julie, people talk about the fact that, well, suppose you tell the patient that the relapse rate might be dropped with their diet, and yet they can't control it, and they relapse, they might feel guilty, that sort of whole type of thinking, should they even bring it up to the patient? What are your thoughts about that dynamic? I think it's, especially in this day and age, patients are very well educated. They ask a lot of questions, they read the paper, they watch the news, and we live in the day of the internet where patients are going and researching and themselves logging onto Medscape and seeing what the latest oncology news for the day is, especially in the region that I live in. So I find it's better for me to discuss these things with my patients than to hold back. And of course, again, you take each patient individually and their intellectual status individually also as to what you're going to discuss with them. But I think it's important that they are aware of the research and the studies that are going on and the studies that have been done. I guess the other thing is it is a method to empower the patient. I think it's important that they realize also that our reasoning for them to necessarily lose weight and to add exercise is not, again, just a vein issue and for how they look. And we're not even just talking about their cardiac profile or for diabetes, that you've gone through all of this therapy. And now this is something that, again, it's not very simple to control your diet and to add exercise. And obesity is a disease just as breast cancer is a disease. And I think it's important that patients do understand that, but that they make the effort, whether it's keeping a dietary journal, starting a modified exercise program and increasing it slowly, and following up with a nutritionist who is a professional in that area. 
Now let's take a little peek into the future for this woman. Hopefully she'll get through the chemotherapy, get her hair back, and kind of get back on her feet. But then she's looking at endocrine therapy. And Chuck, you were talking about maybe taking her ovaries out and putting her aromatase inhibitors. She could go into tamoxifen. But one of the things that's really been a major change in breast cancer management has been the long-term management of women like this with ER-positive tumors and the increasing sensitivity of the risk of late relapse in the 5- to 15-year window. So as you start looking out at this woman's next 10 or 20 years, can you talk a little bit about you know what the curve for relapse looks like in these patients and some of the strategies that are being looked at to deal with this long-term? Well, probably it was five years ago that we were telling our patients who had estrogen receptor negative tumors that they had a poor prognosis and that you know, it would have been better if they were ER positive. And we've learned now that that's really not true in the long run. What we've learned is that if patients are ER negative and PR negative, that they indeed do have a higher incidence of early relapse. But if they make it through those first five years, or I think eight years, they actually do better in the long run than their estrogen receptor positive counterparts. And the relapse rate in years 5 through 15 in the ER-positive patients is higher than the relapse rate in years 1 through 5. So we've learned that, and that now factors into the new dilemma where we have very little in the way of data, and that is we've started using aromatase inhibitors in the postmenopausal patient up front. They've now reached five years of an aromatase inhibitor, and what do you do? And you have absolutely no data on which to base conclusions. The NSABP has a study randomizing women to five additional years of an aromatase inhibitor versus stopping. I think the guidelines basically say you probably would stop at five years. If you had been on tamoxifen for five years, you would then now, based on the MA17 data, switch over to five additional years of letrozole. And in that study, those were people who'd already gotten five years of tamoxifen and randomized to an AI or not. Correct. And they had significantly fewer relapses, even though the AI was started five years after treatment. That's right. Amazing. And, and it goes even further than that, because in that study, they had to break the code early. So the code was broken and somewhere three or four years out, and the women then were all informed that they could choose now to go on open-label letrozole or not be treated. And even starting the letrozole four years after their last dose of tamoxifen... So it's nine years after diagnosis. Correct. Those women are doing better than the women who chose not to go on the open-label letrozole. And so what they're doing now is they're taking the women who were on the additional five years of letrozole and they're randomizing them to five more years. So now we're talking 15 years of hormonal therapy. So basically randomized between 15 and 10 years. Correct. Amazing. I never think there'd be a study like that. What do you see, Julie? You know, we have a lot of people on aromatase inhibitors coming up to the five-year point because the first trial, the ATAC study, that showed that anastrozole resulted in fewer relapses and tamoxifen was reported in December 2001. So there was a whole flood of women coming down the pike. What are you seeing as these women hit five years in terms of their attitude about stopping or continuing? Well, if a woman is tolerating the aromatase inhibitor that she's on without any of the arthralgias or myalgias, she isn't having worsening of osteoporosis by her T-score and bone mineral density, we are explaining to her that the data is not there, but we do offer them the opportunity to continue on the aromatase inhibitor. And most women are choosing to continue on the aromatase inhibitor beyond the five-year mark, even though there's no data to support that at this point in time. You know, the numbers, Chuck, are amazing. We have people Peter Ravden's adjuvant online model, and he now has a component there that helps you sort of figure out the numbers in this five to 10 year point. But, you know, roughly the numbers that I've heard is that in that five to 10 year window, if the patient was originally node positive, you could be looking at 4% relapses a year. So in five years, that's 20%. And a node negative tumor may be 2% relapse per year over five years, 10%. I mean, those are substantial risks. Yeah, these are substantial risks. And I do the same thing in my practice. And if the patient is tolerating it, I'll offer them involvement in the NSABP trial. But I've been singularly unsuccessful in getting patients randomized. They seem to 
either be polarized that they want to be off the drug or if they're tolerating it and they listen to the statistics on the 5 to 15 year relapse, they want to be on the drug. And I've been unsuccessful in randomizing patients on that trial. Julie, you mentioned the arthralgias. Can you talk a little bit more of the spectrum of what you see with these patients and how you approach managing them? For the most part, they're tolerable. Of course, whenever I'm starting somebody on a new medication, including an aromatase inhibitor, we go over the potential side effect profile. And the most common side effect that I see are patients coming in reporting that they feel generalized aches and pains. I've had two patients, I would say, over the last four years, one of which literally came into the office in her pajamas. That's how uncomfortable she was, that she would rather have her breast cancer back than ever take any other medication again to the point that even offering her another aromatase inhibitor, she did not want to take. But that's a very rare instance. I mean, that's less than 5% of the patients that we see any kind of severe arthralgias or myalgias. And usually they're mild and they're tolerable. Anything medical-wise or complementary medicine-wise that seems to help from what you've seen? Usually we'll prescribe anti-inflammatories, including Mobic. And sometimes we'll try Arnica, which is a complementary medicine. Chuck, how often do you see this problem? And when you switch from one AI to another, does it ever get better or does it usually see the same thing? I would say about 30% of patients have some type of joint discomfort with the AIs. And I would agree that somewhere around the 5% level, they find it intolerable. And I've been quite successful in switching from one AI to another and hitting on one that does not have side effects. And it's absolutely amazing. There is absolutely no rhyme nor reason to it. You can start them on any one of the three. If they get severe symptoms, you can switch them to one of the other two, and they may tolerate the drug beautifully and say, you know, this is just a whole new world for me. On the other hand, you get some patients that you try one after another after another, and all three of them are totally intolerable. It's interesting, Julie, you know, we're talking about 10, 15 years of therapy and start thinking about the kind of primary care model of people taking oral medications for a long time. And we're starting to see some data coming out in breast cancer in terms of endocrine therapy about the question of adherence. You know, do people really, once they get out to year three, four, five, let alone seven or eight, are they still taking their medication? What's your take on that in terms of adjuvant endocrine therapy? I think it's important, number one, that you point blank ask the patient when they come in for their visit, are they taking their endocrine therapy? I also document and whenever I give a prescription, so you also note if you haven't given a prescription in a while. Also, over this point in time, you get to know your patients pretty well. You know the patient's profile who are going to be more likely to be taking their medication, not just to mention every day, but probably at the same exact time. And I think sometimes you have to almost use some reverse psychology and say, are you taking your endocrine therapy, whether it's Femara, for instance? Are you taking it every day? I know sometimes you get very, very busy and you might forget, but you know, are you taking it each day? And you just try to feel patients out. It is an oral medication, so whenever we're dealing with oral medications, there does become the issue of adherence. And we also want to find out, too, when there's a cost issue. I have had patients come back and say, well, they couldn't afford to fill the prescription, and now three months passed and they just stopped taking it during that period of time because it costs too much money as opposed to phoning in and seeing what assistance we could help them out with. Any age correlation between adherence, you know, older people taking multiple medications, are you more likely to see a problem with adherence or maybe less likely? We do obviously see polypharmacy in the older population, but I think that for those patients, it's not usually a problem. They're already used to taking whatever their medications may be for different comorbidities. So adding another one is sometimes even less of a problem for somebody who is not on any medication and now has to, A, remember to take something every day and also doesn't like the idea of being on any medication. You know, it's interesting you mentioned this issue of just asking the patient, because I remember seeing a paper at ASCO a couple years ago where they actually videoed these follow-up visits when people are in hormone therapy, and they actually saw that a lot of times the patients weren't even being asked, are you taking your medicine? Do you have a problem taking your medicine? Any sense, Julie, for how often you actually run into this issue of people not taking their long-term endocrine therapy? Studies suggest that it's pretty common. 
There's even been studies saying up to 50% of people don't adhere to long-term endocrine therapy. And then you ask the patients and doctors, and they go, well, no, my patients, they have cancer. They're going to take their medicine. Any take on what's really going on out there? I don't think in my practice it's anywhere near 50%, but I think I could tell you across the line of my practice, probably 50% of the prescribers in my office, a combination of doctors and nurse practitioners, may not ask the patient at each follow-up visit if they are taking their endocrine therapy. And some patients may come in and say, hey, I stopped this because I'm having a side effect or I didn't feel like taking it anymore. I thought I had enough. And then there are some patients that just won't say anything. They want to get in and out of their office visit. They don't have any list of complaints or any update as to what's going on. So I make sure I ask each and every patient if they're taking their medication, I'll also break it down to what time of day are you taking it? When was your last prescription refilled? Can I give you another prescription? Is your insurance company covering it for you? I'll even ask them if they're covering 90 or 30 days on their prescription, just so that we're discussing it and I get a feel for whether or not they're really taking it. I think there's just one other issue, and that was the issue of the Nulasta. Right. With regards to the guidelines, the patient had Nulasta used, and the febrile neutropenia rate for TC is 5%, and for AC it was 3%. And so if you look at the guidelines, basically everybody, at least the pharmaceutical company, is very happy to get the guidelines changed from 40% to 20%. Now we're talking about using Nulasta with a 5% risk of febrile neutropenia. So it has not been my policy to use preemptive pegfilgrastim when I use a TC because the rate of febrile neutropenia is low. How do you find people tolerating Nulasta in the adjuvant situation, Julie? They're tolerating it well. This individual actually did not receive it with her first cycle. She became neutropenic. Her granulocytes dropped to 500, and she required seven days of neupogen, which was the reasoning behind cycle two and three, following her up with a subsequent nulasta. Every now and then, again, we do see the arthralgias, usually in the younger patients, usually more so in females than in male patients also. But again, it's tolerable. And so in this situation, when you got the count that was 500, was that in mid-cycle? That was on day five after chemotherapy, so first Chuck, cycle. Do you think that would be an indication you use Nulast on the next cycle? Oh, yes. Okay. You had one other case we were going to chat about, Julie. Could you go through that one? So this is an 88-year-old female who was diagnosed in 1980 with infiltrating ductal carcinoma, moderately to poorly differentiated. She had one of 15 lymph nodes were positive, ERPR positive. She had a right mastectomy followed by CMF chemotherapy, and she was without evidence of disease for 15 years. In 1995, she developed a malignant pleural effusion, and she was treated with tamoxifen, which she responded to from 1995 to 2001 when she had a recurrence of her malignant pleural effusion. Her tamoxifen was discontinued in 2001, and we watched for two months for a rebound regression. She was then started on Arimidex, which she had a good response to for approximately one year, at which time she developed right upper quadrant pain and hepatomegaly. She had a CAT scan as well as a PET scan, which showed liver metastases, and she had a liver biopsy that did reveal metastatic breast cancer, HER2 new negative. The Arimidex was discontinued, and she was treated with Fazildex, which unfortunately, after three months of therapy, she did not have a response. She developed a new supraclavicular lymph node as well as lung mats. And after that, in March of 2003, she was started on Gemzar. And after three months of Gemzar, she had no response. The supraclavicular lymph node was unchanged. Her liver was still enlarged, and the lung metastases had not changed. Subsequently, she was treated with navalbine in June of 2003, which initially her liver had reduced in size. The hepatomegaly had improved. A supraclavicular lymph node had resolved, and her CA15-3 was going down while on navalbine. Three months later, though, her CA15-3 began to rise, and she underwent an extensive disease workup, including CAT scans, which showed enlargement of the lung mass, a small pleural effusion, although the liver disease was stable. 
She was started on Zalota in October of 2003 and went into a complete remission while on Zalota. Her liver was normal in size. She had no evidence of metastatic disease to the lung, liver, or lymph nodes on CAT scan or PET scan. She had a negative bone scan. Her CEA and her CA15-3 were normal. And she continued on Zalota from October of 2003 till June of 2005. It was held and she was given a break from therapy due to the development of increasing toxicities, including gastrointestinal side effects, weight loss, fatigue, and neuropathy. We held her Zalota for six weeks, and her symptoms had somewhat improved, but not as much as we had hoped, and that's when we treated her with Abraxane. She did very well on Abraxane for approximately one year and then began to have progression in her liver. And when you gave her the Abraxane, what was the schedule? She received it weekly. So she got weekly therapy, and she responded. She responded. She received three weeks on and one week off. That was back in August of 2005. And she responded for about a year. And then she revealed progression in her liver on CAT scan and on physical exam. So subsequently, she went on and had received Avast and after that, Doxel and CMF. And unfortunately, after 20 years, 20 plus years of battling metastatic breast cancer, she passed away. She had a pericardial effusion, underwent a pericardial window at the age of 88. And unfortunately, a few days afterwards, she passed away in the CCU. So Chuck, this is, I mean, kind of the other end of the case we just talked about. This is the whole saga of long-term metastatic breast cancer, incredible story. So she starts out, I guess if I calculate this correctly, as a 60-year-old with her breast cancer. And again, ER positive, node positive, just what we were talking about. And 15 years later, she develops a recurrence. And then amazingly, she has a six-year response to hormonal therapy at that point. Then not too great a response to a couple more hormones, not too great a response to a couple chemo, and then boom, all of a sudden, great response to capecitabine, great response to nabpaclitaxel. What's the sort of message behind this case, would you say? It's just garden variety breast cancer. I mean, we see this all the time. I have many patients in my practice. I mean, this is a lady who had metastatic disease for... 13 years, I guess. Yeah, and I have a lady in my practice right now who is on her 22nd line of therapy. Um, How long has she had meds? About the same time, about 13 years. She's responded to virtually everything. She's currently responding to Navalbean. What I probably would have done with this lady differently, I would have started with Zalota. Zalota is sort of my first line choice of therapy, be the patient old or young. Just got to make sure you don't overdose them. I tend to use a very low starting dose at two grams total dose per day. And I have many similar patients who have had beautiful responses, three and four year responses in metastatic disease with Zalota. The other thing that I probably would have done is after you got that beautiful response with Zalota and when she was starting to wear out from chemotherapy, I would have gone back to hormones at that time. You'd already gotten most of her life-threatening problems controlled, and she was, at that time, I would probably try to maintain a Zalota-induced remission with another hormone. You know, it's interesting, too, because people tend to kind of, quote, put a label on a patient of hormone insensitive, get into chemotherapy and kind of forget about the hormones. So you're saying even if they clinically appear, you know, you've used two, three hormones, none of them works, you come back a couple years later, they can still respond to hormones. Absolutely. Interesting. What was this woman's quality of life like with metastatic breast cancer over those 12 or 13 years? She had a fabulous quality of life. She really tolerated almost every therapy with minimal side effects up until really the last year when she began to have more weight loss and just, I think, start to feel the ill effects of her age as well as the cancer. But she lived her life. She's married for over 60 years. Her and her husband traveled. They're both a vivacious couple. And she really did. It just became a part of her life. Like a diabetic takes insulin, she just chalked it up that I need therapy for my chronic disease, which is breast cancer. Now, speaking of diabetics and insulin, now, as this woman got older, did she start to develop other illnesses and comorbidities that you had to take into consideration? 
Absolutely. She became an insulin dependent diabetic. Speaking of which, she was on antihypertensives. She had had bypass surgery about eight years ago. She also had chronic kidney disease. She had osteoporosis. In addition, arthritis. In the midst of this, about a year and a half ago, she tore her rotator cuff and had a lot of pain and discomfort and required surgery for that. She had broke a hip a few years ago in addition and needed a hip replacement. It was not a pathologic fracture. So she had that polypharmacy and several comorbidities in addition. Now you mentioned that she had napaclitaxel or Braxian. Of course, one of the advantages there is that you don't need to use steroids. What do you think it would have been like if you'd given her either paclitaxel or docetaxel and used steroids with them in terms of her diabetes? How much of a problem do you think that would have been? It definitely would have posed a problem. I think if we had decided to treat her with paclitaxel or docetaxel, we would have done a docetaxel weekly regimen where she didn't need to take the steroids the night beforehand. And we can just give her a small amount of intravenous steroid before each treatment and treat her in a weekly fashion. Because if she was going to have to take two or three doses of Decadron the day before of or after a therapy, I think it would have sent her diabetes into crisis where she would have needed some adjustment especially on those days with her insulin. Now, what about the patients who don't have problems with diabetes in terms of the impact of steroids and, again, avoiding the steroids? How much of an issue is the steroid medication in terms of side effects with patients? You would be surprised. It's much more of a hardship for patients. We do see their blood sugar go up. And I have had patients, I was on call this past weekend, and I had a gentleman call me on Sunday. He was going to be starting chemotherapy for lung cancer on Monday, and he had taken four milligrams of Decadron Sunday morning as well as Sunday evening. And Sunday night, he thought he was going to jump out of his skin. He was all over the place. He felt his heart rate was racing. And it was all steroid induced. Chuck, what's your take on nabpaclitaxel, both in terms of this issue of not needing the pre-medications as well as, I guess, the hints that we're starting to get that maybe it's even more effective than the other two taxanes? I really like the drug and it's brand new and the data indicate that it's every bit as good as paclitaxel without the need for pre-medication and maybe better. And I tend to use it on a weekly schedule, three weeks out of four, just as was done in her case. And the intriguing data, done mostly in Europe, but presented by Bill Gratishar, that nabpaclitaxel may be superior to docetaxel is another very interesting observation that needs to be further studied in a larger U.S. trial, which is currently either ongoing or planned. But nabpaclitaxel could end up being the best of the three taxanes. You know, it's interesting particularly to see it. There was a suggestion in the nab versus paclitaxel of actually a better anti-tumor effect. That was a every three-week dose. So, you know, we're curious about the weekly dose. But why would you theoretically see a greater anti-tumor response considering the fact that it's paclitaxel, same drug, although in a different formulation? Well, basically, it's an active transport mechanism, and it's a very clever scheme, not just the fact that it's albumin-bound and the albumin brings the paclitaxel directly into the tumor cells, but there are also some very interesting little biologic quirks to the drug that seem to make active transport into the cells much better than with paclitaxel. So it doesn't surprise me that it would actually be better. And there's been a lot more interest in the issue of the taxane ever since the trial came out showing that bevacizumab, the anti-VEGF agent, or Vastin, added on to paclitaxel led to some very good results in terms of progression-free survival. What about NAB plus bevacizumab? Well, since I believe that NAB-paclitaxel is probably a better drug and an easier drug to handle for the patient than paclitaxel. I, whenever possible, depending on insurance coverage, substitute the NAB-paclitaxel for paclitaxel in the bevacizumab combination. Any other comments about abraxane, Julie? 
I find it's very well tolerated in the patients that we've been treating and the benefit of not having to use those steroids as a pre-medication definitely poses a benefit for the patients that we're treating. What about the resolution of the neuropathy? It's been stated, you know, that maybe the neuropathy, which does occur with that paclitaxel, maybe resolves quicker. Are we still studying that or do you think we know that at this point, Chuck? I don't think we really know that. That's been the claim But I've seen some patients with rather protracted neuropathy on that paclitaxel. The last thing I want to ask both of you about is the issue of that initial discussion that you have with a woman who's just been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, a devastating situation. And yet here we have a patient who did much better, I think, than anybody in that situation would imagine. Chuck, when you sit down with a patient with metastatic breast cancer, do you bring this up as a possibility that maybe this might happen, or is it too unlikely to even begin to discuss? That's the first thing I tell them. I mean, how often does that really happen, though? I mean, supposedly you read the textbooks and it says the median survival of metastatic breast cancer is two years. So it can't be happening that often. In a paper that we published probably in 1992, the median survival in ER-positive patients was actually four years. In a publication recently from MD Anderson Cancer Center, they were up to like five years of median survival as opposed to the two years that we read in all the textbooks. So I think that this is more realistic. When you get to the hormone receptor negative patients, I think that for the most part, they're going to live about half as long as the hormone receptor positive patients. But I'm very quick to tell patients up front that this should be considered a chronic disease, just as Julie said, and that the chances of prolonged survival and staying out of the hospital and not having much in the way of side effects from therapy is really a very good prospect for them. Julie, you know, Chuck sees just breast cancer. You're in a general oncology practice. You're seeing people with all kinds of cancers. So you're seeing the pancreatic cancers, the lung cancers. That It's a very different situation. What are your discussions with women at first diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer like? What are some of the issues that they bring up and that you bring up in that situation? Well, again, it's just hearing the word cancer, let alone metastatic, and they'll ask, what stage does that mean? And you tell them that's stage four, and how many stages are there? And you say four, and they're ready to think that, you know, this is it. They have a few weeks or a few months to live. And I use stories like this patient, which I can name many others who have lived for years with metastatic breast cancer, especially when they're estrogen receptor positive and with all the hormonal therapy and endocrine therapy that we have available to us today, some of these patients don't need to go on to chemotherapy for some time. Sometimes they can go years without needing chemotherapy. And then I explained to them too, not to mention how many chemotherapeutic agents there are out there. And that chemotherapy today is very different. We have wonderful antiemetics and many patients do very well and have a very good quality of life. And that's just today. And each day there are studies going on and more and more drugs being looked at. And in the years to come, that will be approved that could be available to them. And again, this is a chronic disease and it's not going to go away, but they can live for years and years to go on to see their children and grandchildren, hopefully. And I'm very optimistic for them.